going to Miami. And Gordon Soley looked at me and said, Brick House. He said, now nah, I want you to go back and say the thing like this, but you got anything to get how? And I'm, and I'm looking like, Gordon Soley, not you. Oh, hell no. Dusty Rose, American Pie, Bicentennial, yada, yada, da, yak, yak, this, yuck, yuck, that. Well, Dusty, at one point in time, was one of the biggest cokeheads that I've ever seen in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, in the ring to my left, introducing first the manager, the Doctor of Style, Slick. Doctor Slick. And he represents from the Soviet Union, weighing 313 pounds, Nikolai Vulkov. Slick now going over to Nikolai. And also to... Ladies and gentlemen, oh, I've been asked by the Doctor of Style that you all please rise and respect Nikolai Volkov singing of the Soviet National Anthem. There you are, Jimmy, your wish is granted. This is my favorite part, I love his voice, man. He's great, he's great. is mourning the loss of one of their own tonight. Former WWE star Brian Lawler, also known as Brian Christopher, died this afternoon. Sadly, his death is now the center of an investigation. WMC Action News 5's Chris Luther has been following this story all day and has the very latest. Chris. Ariana, watching Brian Lawler wrestle, you can see he was an entertainer who always left an impression. His death Sunday has sent shockwaves throughout the country and his loss is most felt strongly here in his hometown. To most of America, he was known as Grandmaster Sexay. But diehard wrestling fans in Memphis knew him first as... Too sexy! Brian Christopher! He's larger than life. He really was. For years, Brian Lawler entertained thousands in sold-out stadiums, sometimes wrestling with his father, no. the king of Memphis wrestling, Jerry Lawler. Derek King says he entered the ring with Brian Lawler hundreds of times. I grew up in Memphis, so grew up watching him on Channel 5 myself. So, you know... He was one of those guys that you go, I want to wrestle just like him. Lawler had a long, successful wrestling career, reaching his pinnacle in the late 90s as part of the tag team duo called Too Cool. In 2000, Too Cool won the WWF Tag Team Championship. WMC Action News 5 Chief Meteorologist Emeritus Dave Brown worked wrestling broadcasts for 35 years. He was there when Brian Lawler first got his start in the ring. Brown says Lawler's promising wrestling career was derailed by personal issues. Lawler has been arrested several times over the years for disorderly conduct and assault. Last month, Lawler was arrested for allegedly not paying a bill for a downtown Memphis hotel. Earlier this month, Lawler was booked into the Hardeman County Jail. Police say he drove under the influence, evaded arrest, and drove with a suspended license. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation says Brian Lawler was found Saturday hanging in his jail cell. He was transported to the Regional One Medical Center, where he died Sunday afternoon at 46 years old. It was just shock. We all knew Brian had issues that he dealt with, but, uh, I mean, 
I don't think anybody could have predicted this. It's almost like you don't know what to do. It's almost like you can't believe what you're hearing. Those who knew Lawler say they'll always remember him as a world-class entertainer with a large personality. I'll remember him as a young, very successful wrestler. I would just tell the people, just remember the guy who entertained you day in and day out. Welcome in to Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I'm Jonathan Hood. Thanks so much for being with us here on a very special program. A little bit of a different way of us coming into our program today because on Sunday we had a tragedy. Not one, not two, but three professional wrestlers died within hours of each other on Sunday. Just is an amazing story. Brian Christopher, who is also known as Brian Lawler, the son of Jerry the King Lawler, uh, committed suicide. At least that is the story that we were able to hear. You heard that in the news clip from WMC and Memphis TV. Brian Lawler, who was terrific in Too Cool, who was a terrific wrestler in Memphis, I enjoyed him because he separated himself from Jerry the King Lawler uh, as someone that was his own personality. He, he was <laughs> he had so much energy. He was great in that two cool tag team, but I just thought as a single, he brought a lot to the table as far as energy and trying to get over as a heel. And I thought that we, he didn't even scratch the surface of how good he could have been. So as a, a sad passing of, of Jerry Lawler's son, Brian Christopher Lawler. Brickhouse Brown, a wrestler that I saw in world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas, also from some of the old um, Southwest Championship wrestling tapes in San Antonio under Joe Blanchard. Uh, just a, and saw a lot of him in Memphis as well. A terrific territory wrestler that never made it on the big stage. Just maybe that's why his face was not uh, there for Monday Night Raw when they first opened the show. They showed two wrestlers that passed away, but they didn't show Brickhouse Brown. Well, Brickhouse Brown, I thought, was a very solid wrestler. And if you really want to hear some crazy stories, man, this guy is the king of the shoot interview. He said a lot of things that makes people scratch their head like, wow, did this really happen? But I thought that Brickhouse Brown was a terrific talent. I thought that um, when he was in Mid-South, I thought that uh, the management there tried to push Brickhouse Brown into a spot that I don't think he was very comfortable with. You know, Junkyard Dog was great in Mid-South Wrestling before he came to the WWF. And they put Brickhouse Brown in there because somehow, some way. Management there thought that maybe you put another African-American in the place of JYD and it'll be just fine. Did not work out well for Brickhouse Brown and others that try to fill the roles of of, uh, Junkyard Dog and others. But Brickhouse Brown had a terrific career. And Nikolai Volkov, many remember Volkov from his run in the 80s, but actually his run with Vince McMahon Sr. goes back to the 70s. He also wrestled in Florida. He wrestled in Mid-South and a couple other places. But Nikolai Volkov was a terrific wrestler, a great heel wrestler. And, of course, in the modern day, he was more of a, a friendly man that wore the um, jacket of the United States flag and the Soviet Union flag because he's, he still lived that gimmick. But yet he was still you know, a friendly guy, great at uh, autograph signing. So... Now, just the passing of three terrific wrestlers, Brickhouse Brown, Christopher uh, Lawler, Brian Christopher, and um, Nikolai Volkov. Really, really tough. Okay, so we have a couple of guests on to talk about what's going on in the WWE, but also reflecting back at the careers of Brian Lawler, Brickhouse Brown, as well as Nikolai Volkov. 
We have Mike Johnson from PWInsider.com. We want you to go to that website as we have our conversation. And also we have Chris Zellner from BetweenTheSheetsPod.com. Chris Zellner is out of Georgia and Mike Johnson is out of New York. So they really have a terrific perspective of all three wrestlers that passed away and also some of the uh, current storylines happening in the WWE. So let's hear now first from Mike Johnson from PWIInsider.com with us on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Chris, with the, the passing of Brian Christopher and Brickhouse Brown and Nikolai Volkov, I'll start with Brian Christopher and Brickhouse Brown. What do you think the legacy is of these wrestlers in particular, those two? Well, Brian Christopher, um, being Jerry Lawler's son, he was you know, generation in Memphis when you had Jeff Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett. Jamie Dundee, Bill Dundee's son, Doug Gilbert, of course, Eddie Gilbert's brother, Tommy Gilbert's son. You had all these second-generation guys that were starting to, you know, come into their own in their youth in Memphis in the 90s, this new generation. And he became, you know, the guy there, you know, feuding with Jeff Jarrett, and then Jeff goes to WWF, and then Brian pretty much becomes the guy other than his father in the territory and here's mid nineties and he finally went to WWF and he went to WWF transitioning to the attitude era and his size hindered him at the time there, you know, kind of a big guy place and he focused more on the gimmick of him being Jerry's son and playing off of that. And he just floundered for a bit. They, they put him in too much with Scott Taylor and kind of made them this, quasi homosexual type deal where you're supposed to, supposed to be, you know, together as a, as a, as a partnership outside the ring. And it's too cool when they changed the gimmick and went to that hip hop and they blew up. I mean, blew up. And that's the biggest impact people all over media yesterday. All they were talking about was the match from the Ron Dallas in the first week of February in 2000, when you had uh too cool and, um, yeah, DX and the Radicals on this big 10-man match, and that, the, the place in Dallas was going crazy. And people remember Brian Christopher as Grandmaster 6A dancing around and doing the two cool shtick. Way more than they remember him when he was a top-flight star in Memphis. And that's his impact on the business, because pretty much like that, that's, that's the gimmick he played in TNA, basically, on the indie scene after that. So that is his impact. It's, just, it's interesting. Let me get your thoughts on Brickhouse Brown. What is his legacy? All right, Brickhouse Brown is a guy who he had a, a, a good career in the ring. I mean, he, he worked all the major territories, uh, Jim Clark Promotions, Southwest Championship Wrestling, Championship Wrestling Florida. He worked all, everywhere, off and on. But he's more, more famous probably for working Memphis and Continental and World Class uh, in the late 80s because – when he was in Mid South, he was a baby face, and he was uh, he was one of the guys that Bill Watts brought in to try to replace Junkyard Dog. That's a Junkyard Dog with the World Wrestling Federation, and Bill Watts always wanted to have that black superhero, you know, the, the, to draw the fans in New Orleans in that area. And Brickhouse Brown was one of the early guys that he tried to push in that role, and Brick openly admits that he had a lot of issues outside the ring, and it cost him, and he ends up, you know, going to Memphis, and that's where he becomes like the Brickhouse Brown we all remember. He, they turned him heel. He worked heel for the first time. He became the Black Prince, feuding against the King, Jerry Lawler, being carried around on the throne by the wrestlers. 
Um, he became a member of the Stud Stable with Robert Fuller, where they were doing some heavy race baiting angles, where they gave they gave him a watermelon as a present. They sold his contract to Downtown Bruno and made it seem like Bruno was his master, and just all this wild stuff that Memphis does, you know. And world class is where he goes and forms the Blackbirds with Iceman King Parsons, who you know been been there forever, and they hook up with uh, their ex-referee Harold Harris. So you got these these two prominent black guy wrestlers and a black referee as your ex-black referee as your manager, which, you know, you didn't have that type of stuff in the 80s and wrestling like that. And it got over really good, and they were a solid combination. And, you know, Brick had, like I said, a solid career, but he became infamous <laughs> for his shoot interview he did with HighSpots.com in 2009 where he just torched everybody and told all these wild stories. And it became one of the most popular shoot interviews ever. And they did multiple type of deals after that, which on their streaming network, which you can get on Roku and whatever, all streaming services, when he died, they bumped all those up so people could have easier access to him. And uh, entertaining is the word. Not all of it's true, <laughs> as I've, I've, I've got grown to know, but... Uh, very entertaining. He Brickhouse held, held nothing back, and he was a he was a real dude. And uh, he's a guy I always really I really dug. And um, I just hated to see you know how he died, man. The pro, yeah prostate cancer and just caught it too late and wasn't able to do anything about it. And it's just sad. It's a sad situation. Just like Brian, man. You know, it's just sad. Chris Zellner from Between the Sheets Podcast. Go, go to BetweenTheSheetsPod.com. He's with me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Uh, about Nikolai Volkov, I tried to research this, Chris. Maybe you could tell me uh, better than I know. I know that Volkov, before coming to the WWF, was in Florida, was with uh, Mid, uh, with Mid-South. With, did he ever come through Memphis? And what, what are your memories about him being a monster heel? Volkov went a lot of places. He never went to Memphis, but he went to a lot of places. And, you know, his WWF run in the 80s, he had worked WWF numerous times before in the 70s. Um, he was one half of the Mongols in like, the early 70s. That was his first big push. Um, and then he went to the AWA and worked as Boris Bresnikov. That was the first time he used a actual Russian name. And then he comes back with hair, so people wouldn't really recognize him. As a Mongol, he had no hair and a little, little, little tail in the back. But he comes back with hair in WWF, well, the WWWF in the 70s, and uh, that's when he takes on the name Nikolai Volkov, which was a name of a wrestler in the 50s. So he wasn't even the original Nikolai Volkov. Mm-hmm. It was, a di- I think, a little different spelling. But... Um, that's where he gets hooked up with Freddie Blassie, and he starts having his run with Bruno. Him and Bruno are really tight. Bruno Sammartino, they were, they were both from the Pittsburgh area, and they were, they they had a you know relationship. So he gets a big name there, and then he just travels around. Um, he worked Florida, like you said. Uh, he was managed by Lord Alfred Hayes in Florida. He worked uh, Joe Park Promotions in the early 80s, managed by Lord Alfred Hayes there. was uh, one half the Mid-Atlantic Tag Champions with Chris Markoff. Um, and he worked Mid-South, like you said. That's when he really started hitting people's radar in the, in the 80s is when he worked Mid-South. He was North America champion for a short time. 
They did this big angle where they were pushing him and Dusty Rose and him and Junkyard Dog. And this is right as the USA-Russia thing is really heating up. And Bill Watts, of course, being the master of, of playing those type of angles, really made Nikolai into this evil character. He corrupted Crusher Darso and made him, you know, a Russian sympathizer and changed his name to Crusher Khrushchev. They were burying people under the Russian flag. I mean, it was a big deal. And then he goes to Georgia for a short time and works for uh, Ole Anderson on TBS and George Championship Wrestling. And that's how he gets up with WWF. Because when WWF bought out Georgia Championship Wrestling, they offered all the wrestlers and all the employees contracts. Well, not really just contracts, but offered them jobs. And there was a handful of people that took it. The spoiler, Les Thornton, Nikolai Volkov, and Freddie Miller, who was one of the announcers. They were the ones that took the jobs. And uh, the, the Volkov goes to WWF, and the rest is history. He becomes, you know, tag champion, opponent for Hogan, and just becomes like this guy who's always there and people will always remember as one of the stalwarts of 80s WWF. Chris, I'll ask you this about the modern day, what we're seeing here in 2018 with wrestling. Is today's Monday Night Raw as good, better, or worse than wrestling, say, in 1990, 1991? Because you know how, how thin things were, Chris, in the 1990, the turn of that decade. It wasn't great. How do you look at Raw versus that era of wrestling? Um, it's way better as far as tele- television product goes. Sure. I mean, you got to look at the you know the 90s, late 80s, and whatever. You know, most of your television for WCW and WF, it was pretty much all squash matches. And even the early days of Raw was like that. You know, it really didn't, you know, pick up steam until Nitro started, you know, 95. And that's when you started getting competitive matches on television a lot more in the whole Monday Night War beginning. So in that regard, it's a lot better. As far as that booking goes, um, I've said the booking, the booking has been more hit and miss lately. And back then, too, it wasn't, you know, always great shakes. But, um, you know, it's, it's that's the way it is. And I think the, big, the biggest difference of all is how the crowds are. You know, the crowds these days are very different than they were back then. Um, crowds back then, you, I mean, they were conditioned. You boo the heels, you cheer the baby faces, you know, that was the reactions you made. And, of course, there were people that were exceptions to the rule, you know, and especially in different cities. But now it's, a, you know, it's whatever, you know, just however the crowd feels about a guy. I don't care if he's a baby face or a heel. And basically WWE, there's a lot of times no, you know, differentiation between the two. I mean, guys are really not baby faces, especially baby faces. The guys that are heels are really baby faces if you think about their portrayals and what their plight is. So there's so much gray area now compared to the early 90s and late 80s. That's the biggest difference of all, in my opinion. Chris Zellner from the BetweenTheSheetsPod.com with me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Everything's available now, whether it's on YouTube or wherever you stream your, your wrestling from the past or to the WWE Network. Is, is there a wrestling territory that you wish you could watch every week in wrestling history? Like, if you could do it today without the on-demand, week-to-week that you enjoy watching? Oh, man. Um, i tell you I've got, what. Um, I've got the, mine. Do you have yours? <laughs> I'll tell you this. The best week-to-week wrestling 
in my opinion, would have been Watts and Miss South uh, from 84 to 86. That's the best overall. I mean, because you got most of his television were competitive matches. The booking was solid. You had a lot of great angles. And you had all this top-tier talent coming in. You know, th- that roster in 84 he had was as strong a roster as any territory ever had. And, I mean, that's the one I would say a week-to-week deal that I would prefer. But I tell you this, folks, if you've never watched Continental Championship Wrestling mm-hmm. out of, uh, you know, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, take the Wild Tour from 85 to 86 as well, the same time period, it's Mid-South-esque but a different way and – it's tremendous, and a lot of that is on YouTube. Um, you can search it out. Um, the big stars, of course, Robert Fuller, Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud, Bob Armstrong, Brad Armstrong, Tommy Rich. A lot of you know guys come through, named guys, and it's just a tremendous television show. So those are the two. But I mean, you're you could Crockett from that era, tremendous as well. You know, Memphis had a, had some great runs, but I, I gotta go. Watch from eighty four eighty six as my top choice. I think that's that's pretty close. I think that some of the Mid Atlantic. I've been watching a lot of the Mid Atlantic from ah uh, eighty four, eighty four, eighty five, somewhere in there. I think January of eighty four. That's on the network. I've been keeping my eyes on. And as far as Continental's concerned, for those that want to see a great angle, because I'm a Continental Mark too. The, one of my when people ask me what's my favorite angle or one of my favorite angles, I'd say. I'd like to talk to Tom, and they say, well, what is that? I said, that is Tom Pritchard and Dirty White Boy. It is something that you never see again. You only see it maybe once or twice, but in that era, that was just tremendous. Put that in your Google machine. Dr. Tom Pritchard and Dirty White Boy, I'd like to talk to Tom and then see if you're not amazed at the way that that whole angle worked out. You're familiar with that, right? It's legendary. It won Angle of the Year and the uh, Wrestling Observer Awards that year. It's, and that can, comes at a time when they're going through a booking change. Um, Eddie Gilbert had just taken over the book, uh, but I think the angle was already set when he took over. So he gets a lot of the credit for it, but it happens on the first television show that he appears on, and it, it leads to the destruction of the Continental set which forced them to, you know, that's when they actually changed their name to Continental Wrestling Federation not long after that, so that's why they got rid of the set. So there's a lot that went on there. And, uh, yeah, the Tom Pritchard, uh, Tom Pritchard, Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony, Dirty White Girl deal is uh, one of the best angles of that era, no doubt. And, and you, got, you, you have to watch the other stuff that comes after it, too, because there's a lot of interesting things after that. Tom Pritchard getting attacked in the parking lot with a beer bottle. I mean, it, it's a lot that goes on there. So, uh, yeah, that's a quality angle, no doubt. Well, Chris, I want people here on the show to be able to know more about BetweenTheSheetsPod.com. I'm a listener, and tell them about Patreon as well. Tell people about your website and your podcast. All right, BetweenTheSheetsPod.com. It takes you directly to the SoundCloud where we upload our shows. Uh, Between the Sheets is a weekly show that – drops every Monday. Basically what we do, myself and my co-host David Dixon-Span, is we we pick a week of the past and we scour all of the content that we can find from newsletters like the Wrestling Observer, Pro Wrestling Torch. We'll find results from different websites that may not be on there. We'll find clips from the television shows for that week and play those, whatever we feel like we want to play. 
and we do a this week in wrestling type format for it for that week of the past. So, you know, our previous our show we just dropped was for uh, 1993. So we're talking about the Lex Express Media Blitz and World Wrestling Federation. We're talking about um, the World Wrestling Network, which was a group that Polly Dangerously and Jim Crockett were involved with having their first show. Uh, we talk about the Destroyer Dick Byer retiring at the All Japan uh, Budokan show that week, which was an amazing show for wrestling, just amazing. And uh, we just do that every week. And our, our next show will be covering 1986. So we go we go 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and you know we try we. We make sure that we, you know, stay in line with our timeline, and it's it's a really fun show to do. A lot of a lot of work goes into doing it, but it's a really fun show. We have guests, sometimes we don't, and we started a Patreon a year a year ago, Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets, where we do a special monthly theme show. And uh, the past two shows, I think, are two of our best shows we've ever done. In fact, the past four, <laughs> we mm-hmm. did a two part. We we did a, a three part show on the Global Wrestling Federation, if I'm not mistaken, the history of Global Wrestling Federation, and we've done a two part special on the history of Herb Abrams UWF, which is a complete crazy insane scene there. I mean, when the promoter is a known cocaine abuser and just a complete sociopath, <laughs> I mean, it, it it makes for some high entertainment. So uh, it's five dollars a month to uh, listen to the audio on the on the Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. So go there for more info Between the Sheets Pod.com for Between the Sheets, and I also have my own solo podcast that's all on Bad Street that I do with random guests, and we talk mainly about gold stuff and uh, a lot of great podcasts on there. If you love old wrestling, it, I mean anything from the eighties, nineties, two thousand, even the seventies. We uh, you can find it all there, and uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. I'm glad that you are a uh, a listener. I'm glad you like it. Absolutely, and we want everybody to go again at betweenthesheetspod.com. That's exactly where you go, Chris. Let's let's uh, do it again because I want to have some long form conversation about some of the territory stuff because. Uh, I want to hear more from you than you hear from me because I grew up with Vern's TV in the in Chicago, so there's not much to talk about there. I can tell you about three <laughs> angles my whole life, my whole childhood. So, so let's talk about other things that are more interesting. So I I appreciate yeah. you coming on. Absolutely, man. Anytime you want me, I'll be there. All right, Chris. Thanks, man. Mike, uh, obviously for us longtime wrestling fans, this is it was a very difficult day on Sunday to see three uh, great wrestlers passing away. What was your first thoughts, each one, of Nikolai Volkov, of Brickhouse Brown, and Brian Lawler? When you think about those three names, what comes to mind for each? Uh, well, for Brian, obviously there's a great, you know, it, it's a very depressing, tragic story because of everything surrounding it and we still don't know what the full story is. The, you know, allegedly he took his own life while he was in jail. We don't know. There's an investigation open. There, obviously, there's going to be conspiracy theories coming out of this. The family, does, you know, Jerry Lawler himself said he believes there's more to more to the story than meets the eye uh, when he was speaking to local media in Memphis. But Brian, as a wrestler, you know, when I think of him, everybody remembers him from Too Cool in WWE, where he, Rikishi, and Scotty Tuhati had this great manic. Uh, exciting dance 
dance-oriented act where Rikishi was the anchor with the super huge derriere hanging out, and Scott Taylor or Scotty Tuhati was the in-ring worker who kind of kept it all together and had the worm, which was a, one of the most ridiculous but one of the most ridiculously popular moves ever in pro wrestling. And then Brian Christopher, who you know, was Grandmaster Sexy, he had this great, fun, manic energy, and he was always the guy that would get the hot tag and come in and do all the big, all these big moves. And they kind of had this like comedic, fun team. But to me, I remember him in 1992 and 1993 when he worked in Memphis, which at the time the, the promotion was the USWA. And as a villain, he was such a great antagonist. And it was like he combined the best of Jerry Lawler, who was his father, and guys like Eddie Gilbert. And he had this great abrasive nature of doing interviews and cutting promos and making people legitimately hate him. But at the same time, there was sort of like this cool swagger to him that it was undeniable he was such a great wrestler. And he really was the last great wrestler to come out of the Memphis Territory, as it was called. You know, when you think about when he moved on to go to WWE, there wasn't an ex-great definitive guy. It was older guys who were involved, and they did nostalgia stuff. But he was the last guy to kind of cut his teeth there and grow from a novice into a legitimate star. So when I think of Brian, I'm going to think of that. And Too Cool was such a great act for that time period in WWE and there were lots of times I went to events, whether they were pay-per-views or tapings or even live house shows, where other than guys like The Rock or Steve Austin, that dance act was going to get the biggest reaction of the night. That They should never, ever be downplayed in terms of their importance to WWE in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Now, Brickhouse Brown, great wrestler who unfortunately never got to have a big national run. He had some flirtation in the AWA. He worked a number of different territories, including the Memphis area. And he was just a great, tough guy, very charismatic. If he had come along today, he would have been a huge star in the national scene. You know, brain cancer, he had been fighting it for a long time. So you kind of knew it was inevitable. He was in hospice care. But it's no, nonetheless heartbreaking. And then Nikolai Volkov, you know, that's one of the original cast members of the WWF for the national expansion, and he had a huge run even before that as one of the Mongols and working with Bruno San Martino on top in the WWF. But I think the most people, myself included, when I think of Nikolai, I think of Nikolai Volkov waving the, the Soviet flag against Hulk Hogan in a flag match on Saturday night's main event, or I think of Nikolai teaming with the Iron Sheik, which was a, a big bruising tag team in the 1980s who, you know, they were the living embodiment of the Cold War and America in its quest to defeat communism and all those other things. You know, he was the perfect character to play a villain during that time of Sylvester Stallone and against Dolph Lundgren and Arnold Schwarzenegger against all these outside enemies and, you know, that, that just Chuck Norris and missing in action and that whole sort of um, pro-Americana genre of films and, and, and just the, the, the entire social embodiment of what the world was like in terms of our political culture at the time. But more than that, I'm going to think of his kindness, because, and I, I said this on PW Insider, I think a lot of people, maybe even myself included, took, um, took for granted that he was still around and active and still working from time to time as a wrestler and was still involved in the local wrestling scene up in the Mid-Atlantic area like Maryland where he lived and was always at wrestling conventions. And he was one of those names that you kind of took for granted that he would always be around because he had always been around. So I, I, you know, I was shocked and sad at all three, 
But when I heard Nikolai went, like uh, my, my heart really skipped the beat because he had been basically part of that whole scene for so many decades. It, it's crazy to think of the wrestling world without him popping up at some point to do the Soviet national anthem. Mike Johnson from PWInsider.com with Jonathan Hood on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Mike, um, looking at um, Brian Christopher, Brian Lawler, you know, you think about second-generation wrestlers, and I, I think you nailed it when you talked about the charisma factor, and he just had a little something extra. That By no means was he Greg Gagne or Angelo Mosca Jr. He really did bring some to the table as a second-generation wrestler. No, usually second generation wrestlers are one of they go one of two paths. One, their name value gets them in the door. They get pushed a little too hard before they're either able to connect with the audience or they're physically able to live up to the stress and the pressure that comes with their their legacy. Or they come in and very quietly they make their name and they get better and better and better. And when you think about Brian Christopher, you know, they they hid the fact that he was Jerry Lawler's son for so many years on a public on a public level. You know, I kind of look at him similar to Dustin Rhodes, who everybody knows is Gold Dust now. You know, they quietly brought him along. He was working under a mask and things like that very early on in his career. And he, you know, very quietly evolved into a very good in-ring wrestler. Brian probably had more innate charisma, but Brian was also playing a, a villain very early on. And Memphis was such a great place for guys to develop because they were on live TV for 90 minutes every Saturday morning. So you had to do what you, you had to bring your best and you had to connect with the audience on TV because if you didn't, you were not going to make money that Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum because way before Monday Night Raw, the tradition was there was Monday Night Wrestling in Memphis. So Saturday, the whole city was watching. And if you think I'm exaggerating, go and look it up. The entire city would basically shut down to watch the wrestling because there were no sports franchises for many, many years in, the, in that city. Wrestling was the franchise. And then your work on Saturday dictated how you drew a live crowd on Monday. And he took to wrestling like a duck to water. He had such – in 1992 and 1993, you would have looked at him and thought, this guy is going to be the next star. He was that good. And a lot of that's been kind of washed over and forgotten in uh, because of the persona that he played in WWE because he was one-third of a, of a, of a popular ta- tag team act. And he did a lot of silly stuff and a lot of comedy stuff that appealed to the crowd. And But the national audience never really got to see him be the Brian Christopher that he was in Memphis. And, and in, a, in a way, that's a shame, but he made his money you know, the way he went. But, yeah, he really, if you look at what he did as a second-generation star, from the beginning he was over-excelling in comparison to a lot of other names. And I guess with Brickhouse Brown, the thing I will always remember is watching him in, in um, watching him in Mid-South, watching him in World Class in Texas and in a number of other territories. So I'm in, in Memphis. I guess as of late for the more recent wrestling crowd, you know him for all these shoot tapes because he's been saying a lot of things um, on the record that's just kind of, interesting um you know toward the end of his career but i um mike i look at brickhouse brown as someone uh, as as someone that today really probably would get over with because of his size and he really had that um the the feeling of springs in his legs he could be able to do a lot of things i thought in the ring that really surpassed what you saw in the 80s and the 90s he carried himself like a tough guy and today, a lot of wrestlers, while they're obviously great athletes, you don't feel that innate toughness for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And he had a great look. 
he was very underrated when it came to pro interviews and charisma. And you mentioned that, you know, that drop kick, it looked like he was going to take someone's head off with it. He was absolutely great. And, you know, some of that, you know, he had that little flirtation where he was on AWA TV towards the tail end of it. And he worked in, like, the Continental area, which had national TV for a little bit, but never was consistently available on a, on a major state scale. And he worked in Texas, and he was in world class, but he never really had that chance to kind of be consistently on a national television basis. And I don't know why that is. I mean, if you look at the end of his career, he was kind of a wild child with the, with the interview tapes that High Spots released. And he told all sorts of crazy conspiracy theory stories and all these stories that were a little salacious. And maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But, you know, he was someone that if he came along today – he would have walked right into WWE's Performance Center, would have gotten a job, and would have been on NXT TV within a year. He was just a great, pure athlete, and he had the charisma. And that's something they can't teach. If they could teach, WWE would be selling out every show. That charisma is either within a talent or something about them just attracts the audience and pulls the audience in. And he had that. And I don't know that there's a real reason other than maybe just bad timing or maybe he just didn't have the right connections at the time or he didn't have the right person pushing for him as to why he never went further in the business but he was a great he was a great wrestler and probably one of the more underrated talents of the late 80s mike johnson from pwinsider.com with jonathan hood on espn 1000 in the espn app let's talk about what's happening today mike with brock lesnar coming up on monday night raw last night from miami we finally saw brock lesnar toward the tail end of monday night raw how likely is it for him to remain Universal Champion with Vince having yet another swerve to keep him champion at SummerSlam? Well, I live in the New York City market. Locally, they're already advertising him for the day after SummerSlam at the Barclays Center, where they're going to broadcast not just SummerSlam that Sunday night, but the next day they're going to broadcast Raw from there. So he'll be on TV the next day, unless there's some major swerve that we don't know about. It's quite possible he ends up keeping that belt and then dropping it the next day. Braun Strowman's running around with the, the Money in the Bank briefcase. You know, all signs are that this is going to be it for Brock, but everybody kind of felt that way at WrestleMania just a couple of months ago. So there's no, there's no stopping the two sides from signing another extension and him not popping up again until November. Uh, you know, he wants to go and fight UFC. That's not going to happen until the first quarter of 2019. You can see that he's kind of slimmed down a little bit, probably did prepare for fighting. But, uh, you know, I don't put anything past them, especially when Paul Heyman's involved, because Paul's such a great manipulator of media and such a great uh, manipulator of uh, trying to get a certain narration out there. I really don't throw anything past them. And, you know, if Vince McMahon thinks it's going to make him money, he'll keep that belt on Brock Lesnar until Brock walks into the octagon. It all falls down on the shoulders of Vince McMahon and what he wants in that moment. And really, until they walk out to the ring, Vince could change his mind at any moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I, Mike, um, you know, historically with SmackDown, it has been the wrestling-heavy show. I guess it's a show that I prefer the most. Maybe I'm just not into the entertainment part of the WWE, but I do like you know, the in-ring work that we see on SmackDown more times than not. And AJ Styles is the WWE champion, and I, I know that everyone knows that. But does this not feel somewhat like the CM Punk reign in which, yes, we're making him the champion, but no, he's not necessarily the main event? And to me, that there's a, a disconnect there. If the champion's the champion, no matter what, shouldn't he be in the main event? Uh, AJ Styles in the last pay-per-view, not even in the last match on the card. Yeah, I, I, I've talked and written about this a lot on PWInsider.com. 
I feel like the WWE Championship is the one that has all the legacy and lineage going all the way back to Buddy Rogers and Bruno San Martino and all that and should always be presented as this diamond and that sits on a pedestal and everybody in that company should be chasing it. Like, that's the ultimate goal. That's the Maltese Falcon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it falls down to WWE looks upon Raw as the more important property and the WWE Universal title is on Raw. And if AJ had the WWE title and he was on Monday Night Raw, he would be treated in a far different manner. It is frustrating as someone who knows how great he is, especially when you see matches like he had with Andrade Almas a couple of weeks ago that are just great wrestling matches. And obviously the match at SummerSlam with Samoa Joe, that's pretty much a gimme that unless they each have the worst night of their careers, they're going to have a great match in a couple of weeks in Brooklyn. Uh, it, it bothers me, but I'm also one of the one of these older uh, purists who look at Madison Square Garden as hallowed ground because of all the history. And in the reality, you know, it, it, WWE is going to present whatever narrative they feel right now in the moment will get them the most money and get them the most attention. And the Brock Lesnar thing is treated as more important than AJ Styles in the WWE Championship. I personally don't like it at all. I think it, I think it's a it's a bad decision in terms of long term. You want to keep everything important to, oh, to, and treat it like it's always important. But they kind of start and stop with with, with storylines and with characters and with pushes for talents. And I think this is just another indictment on the fact that they start and stop things. I don't think they mean to do it. It's just not a priority to them. Mike, who has more upside in the company? Is it Drew McIntyre, who is kind of in this diesel role with um, Dolph Ziggler, which I have to find odd because I think Drew as a single himself is a dominant uh, player, I think, for the WWE. Or is it Baron Corbin, who had a very good match, I thought, on Raw on Monday night? Corbin did have a really good match with, with Finn Balor on Monday, and I actually thought it was one of the better matches we've seen him have in his WWE run. It might have also been the longest match that he's ever had on television because that went about 20 or 22 minutes. Uh, if if, if you've got to push me with one or the other, I say Drew McIntyre. Everything that he does since he's come back, it just the, the intensity is there. Every step that he takes, every glance that he makes, every move that he does in the ring. You mentioned the Diesel thing. I think he has single-handedly brought a new dimension and a new interest to Dolph Ziggler. When Drew's around him, I'm more interested in watching Dolph. When Drew is not with him, I feel like the balloon sort of deflates a little. Uh, I look at Drew McIntyre, and I honestly believe he's going to be the Universal or the WWE Champion at some point. I can't imagine with the amount of hard work that he puts in, the level of physicality, the size that he is, which is always a premium in WWE, because he's a big dude. I can't imagine that they're not going to tap him on the shoulder and say, yeah, we're going to forget three-man bands and all that stuff ever happened. You're the guy. Um, I think Corbin was someone who came in and kind of just stalled out at the gate. And I, I think that's sort of – there's two reasons there. I think one is he's, he was still finding himself as a performer – and two, I don't think they gave him at any point until now any sort of consistently strong creative direction. Uh, the, when, they, when they brought about the Constable character, I, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, great, this is what wrestling needs, yet another authority figures. Lord knows we're overindulged with those on wrestling mm-hmm. across the board. But it's given him a chance to kind of speak more, find a character for himself, get himself sort of ingratiated with the WWE audience, where before that he never had been, especially if you compare him to a guy like Elias, who kind of came up after him and really leapfrogged past him, and the audience has taken to him. So this is, this is the chance to kind of reboot 
Corbin, I wouldn't say he's dead in the water and, and he's a wasted effort, but I think if you look at the two, Drew McIntyre certainly has more momentum, and that's the guy I would tap personally. Mike, I always ask all of our guests here on the program every Tuesday after SmackDown this question, so I'll ask you because you have to watch a ton of wrestling. I watch my share uh, of, of wrestling every week, but I want to ask you about your four favorite wrestling shows to watch every week. Oh, wow. So I watch everything. I don't always write about every show, but I watch everything, which is sometimes my eyes glaze over. Usually it's about 8.15 on Mondays, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes my eyes glaze over. The four shows that I really go out of my way to make sure that I watch them immediately, uh, on the WWE end, I love NXT. It's always, the, you know, the wrestling is more of a throwback to a more physical style that, that I grew up with in the 80s, watching Jim Crockett promotions and world-class and, and sort of got a, a WWE twist to it, but the, the storylines are logical. The characterizations are, are the, for the most part, deeper than we see on Monday Night Raw or SmackDown Live, and you feel like you're watching these talents grow and find themselves. And to me, one of the great joys I have writing about wrestling is going to shows, whether they're tiny shows or NXT or even the, main, the WWE main roster shows, and finding talents and watching them have that moment where they reach that next plateau and they have that great definitive moment for themselves. Um, so I really love watching NXT, and the takeover shows are always, like, to me, the modern-day equivalent of an old NWA or WCW pay-per-view where just when, it's, when, when it all hits on the, on, the, on, the, on the right cylinders, it's just great the entire time. I also really like 205 Live. I feel like they had kind of done the Cruiserweights wrong when they first brought them up to the main roster and first started the show. But since they've rebooted it, taken the Cruiserweights off of Monday Night Raw, and given them very slow, logical storylines, and it's in a one hour where they have a lot of TV time to have really good matches, which is what you want athletes like that to do, it really works. Um, I also have really enjoyed MLW Fusion, the Major League Wrestling show that's on BN Sports uh, across the nation in different markets. They kind of have a nice alternative feel to professional wrestling now where you've got this sort of hybrid of a 1980s WWF undercard where the rising stars are spotlighted and then the main event is sort of like this balls to the wall all action just kick-ass fun athletic wrestling with a lot of younger guys mixing hard-hitting moves and dives and lucha libre and it just with Tony Schiavone calling it it, it kind of you know there's sort of like this old home sort of feel to it because you know Tony was the voice of Crockett and WCW for so many years and it just feels different and it feels unique and then I'd have to say obviously you know New Japan on Access TV you know yes they've done a great job of showing more consistently current material where before it was like material from a year ago or nine months ago like they're current starting this week they're going to be showing material from the G1 Climax tournament which has had great wrestling up and down the board and really like 10-15 days after the show is taking place they're going to have those matches airing with Jim Ross and Josh Barnett calling them in English. And if you just want great, pure athletic wrestling, where all that is is a presentation of the sport and a presentation of good athletics where guys are wrestling and grappling and having uh, emotional, dramatic matches based on the physicality and the storytelling in the ring, you can't, go, you can't go wrong with the New Japan stuff. And there's lots of other little shows out there. And some weeks, even WWE Main Event, which is kind of like the, the, the bottom of the ladder, It'll have a good, solid match that people will look at, people will overlook, but the wrestling's good. And I mean, there's a lot, there's more out there now, and it's easier for an audience to find than ever before. 
I lived through a generation where I had to literally track down like underground Japanese video stores to find Japanese wrestling in New York City, or I had to find someone that lived in Memphis to trade tapes and mail them, trade tapes with them and mail tapes back and forth in order to, to watch Memphis TV. So like now things happen and five minutes later they're up on YouTube or they're, they're, they're available on so many different streaming platforms. To me, I'm jealous because if I was 18 years old and a diehard wrestling fan now the way I was then, I wouldn't know what to do with myself with all the content that's out there. I had to fight and look and, re- and, and, and really scratch around and dig to find this content. Now it's just out there, and I think sometimes we almost take it for granted that so much is out there. We're living in a really lucky time. If, if you love wrestling, this is a really golden era for you. Yeah, but if it, back in our days, in the territory days, if all that stuff was available and we were 18 now, we would have flunked out of high school. That's quite possible. <laughs> There's so much. At least you waited for Saturdays for the for the action to take place. You like you could, you could wait on the weekends. Uh, every day there's something, Mike. We wouldn't. I'm not sure if we'd have the full education with wrestling every day, every moment, anytime that you want it. It's kind of weird, right? Kids today will never know the struggle of I have to be home by 6:05 to see uh, WCW or Jim Crockett because there were no DVRs, and if you didn't own a VCR. It was lost forever. There were no replays, you know? There was no video on demand. So people, kids today will never know the struggle of, oh, my God, i got to get home to see what happens with Dusty and Flair. You know, it, 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 it's a different world now. <laughs> There's no question. Uh, tell, tell how our fans can be able to subscribe to PW Insider. I want people to be able to connect to your website. Sure. Uh, PWInsider.com. You can read it for free. Uh, we're a mom-and-pop company, so there is advertising on the site. Uh, but the, for three days free, if you go to PWInsiderElite.com, you can sign up via PayPal for three days free and get access to our Elite section. It's completely ad-free. It's on its own server, has all of our content that would be on the free site. But we do a number of podcasts every day just for subscribers. We do interviews with people from WWE on down to the independents. Uh, we have audio shows every day. We have uh, news-breaking hotlines. So you get... All of everything that you would see on PWInsider.com plus hours upon hours of audio content, including access to our archives, which has, I think, like 10,000 different audios dating back to 2004. So there's a ton of stuff that you could dive into if you really want to deep dive in as a wrestling fan. And I hope if everyone listens, I hope they get a chance to check it out. Again, PWInsider.com. We want you to be able to check that out and support Mike Johnson. Mike, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on with us here in Chicago. Jonathan, my pleasure. I'm a big fan of Chi-Town. I miss deep dish pizza, and I look forward to getting back there at some point. And I uh, just want to thank everyone for listening, and I want to thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Great conversations with Mike Johnson from PWInsider.com, as well as Chris Zellner from BetweenTheSheetsPod.com. We'll have another Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday coming up next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Central after SmackDown Live right here on ESPN 1000.